If you could open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. Those of you who have been here, you know, I just want to remind or kind of bring new visitors, new guests up to speed here. We've been moving through the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, looking at the life of Jesus Christ, our King. And you came at a good time. We're in Matthew 17, at one of the greatest events in Jesus's life we're going to look at this morning. So turn to Matthew 17. I'm going to start reading as we always do. In verse 1, I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we will get into the sermon. Matthew 17, we're looking at verses 1 to 13 today. The text reads, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. As they're coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Companies are going to throw their best at you this afternoon. Are you ready for it? The advertisements, the commercials. I read a recent article that told, uh, told me that the NFL will make $600 million this afternoon off of paid advertising. That doesn't include the monies that the networks receive from these advertisers. I heard or I, I read that one such company spent over $50 million on their one campaign, their commercial campaign leading up to the Super Bowl. Companies will spend ridiculous amount of monies because they want your attention today. They want your attention. They want to draw you in to buy their product, see their movie, whatever it is. I promise you that the best commercial you will see today is the one that I just read to you from the scriptures. The transfiguration of Jesus is a preview, a sneak peek at the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. And it far surpasses any kind of 
motivating, uh, aesthetically appealing thing you might see today in the Super Bowl. This is a vision of glory, uh, a motivating trailer, a teaser of what you can expect when he comes back. And I want to ask you a question. Does Jesus have your attention today? Does the Lord of glory, the King of kings, Lord of lords, the one who is coming back in a glorious return, does he have your attention right now? Or are there other things vying for your attention? Are there other distractions that are holding you back from a full pursuit of Christ and his glory? We need this preview. We need this commercial, if you will, this sneak peek at the glory of Christ to be recaptured, remotivated by his glory. So, let's look today at the transfiguration. It shows us two things, or it has two uh, calls for us, okay? First, that we would look at Jesus. Second, that we would listen to Jesus. Okay, if Jesus has your attention today... He wants your eyes and He wants your ears for you to behold His glory and then to listen and obey His word. Very simple outline today. Look at Jesus. Listen to Jesus. That's what the transfiguration calls us to do. So first in your outline, fill in the blank. Look at Jesus. Look at Him. You notice I emphasize as I read the word behold. Did you hear it in the text? Behold. We've seen that word before in the study of Matthew. Matthew uses it a lot because he he uses that word to draw our attention to something. It's Matthew's way of saying, hey, stop and pay attention here. You need to see this. Behold. Behold. You'll notice a couple weeks ago, you know, as I'm expositing through Matthew, I skipped verse 28 of the last chapter. Maybe a few of you caught it. I want to explain why. If you, if you scroll up and look at 1628, okay, the verse right before this chapter, Jesus says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here, he's talking about those of his disciples, There's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now that word kingdom, basileia in the Greek, could be translated as kingdom. It could also be translated or understood as kingliness or or in His royal majesty. I believe the latter sense is more appropriate in this context. So what Jesus has just told us, okay? What Jesus just told us, he said, Truly I say to you, his disciples of the twelve men standing there, some of them, a few of them, will not die until they see the royal majesty of Jesus presented. I believe that verse relates more to this chapter than anything, because it's no coincidence that in the very next verse, Jesus takes them up a mountain, just a few of them, to what? To see something. He wants to show them something. In fact, he's going to reveal his glory. 
Now, I just want to make a comment on the men that Jesus brought up with him. Who are they? Peter, James, and John. The only comment I want to make is that we see a glimmer of the grace of Jesus in this event. What happened to Peter in chapter 16? Do you remember? Well, he had that climactic moment. He declared, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, on that rock, that confession you just made, I'm going to build my church. That's a high moment. Later in the chapter, what did, G- what did Peter do? He rebuked Jesus. Jesus told him, I'm going to suffer and die. Jesus says, as far as it depends on me, I'll never let that happen. Which is to say, Jesus, I'm going to stand between you and God's plan for your life. What did Jesus tell him then? Get behind me, Satan. I'd say, and do you agree with me? That's a low moment in Peter's life. So Peter just went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. But where do we find him now? Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. But Jesus doesn't leave Peter behind, does he? Here's a little glimmer of Jesus' forgiveness and restoration of this disciple. He went from saying, get behind me, Satan. Get out of my way, Peter, to Peter, come back in. Come up with me. I want to show you something. Jesus does the same thing with Peter again after he denies him three times. Peter denies Christ at the trial three times. And later in John's gospel, he shows us how Peter was lovingly restored. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And Jesus patiently, mercifully and graciously just draws him back in. Don't you appreciate Jesus and how he's done that with you in your life? Oh, we all sin. We all stumble. We all have low moments. Even as Christians, we we make big mistakes. We can stumble into some big traps. But Jesus, if we're his, is faithful to pursue us and always bring us back in to forgive us and restore us. Maybe that encourages some of you today, stuck in some sin, some circumstances, feeling hopeless. Maybe you've made a huge error and you're wondering if Jesus would forgive you or love you enough to draw you back in. Look at what he did for Peter. The glimmer of the king's grace is inviting Peter up that mountain. And so he invites both Peter, James, and sorry, three people, John. And I want us to look together at what they saw on this mountain. First, we need to look at his glory. Look at Jesus' glory. Peter wrote about what he saw on the mountain in his epistle, 2 Peter. He writes, We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for we were with him on the holy mountain. John wrote about what he saw in his gospel. In John 1, he said, We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Matthew writes this in verse 2. Look at his glory. Matthew tells us he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. What a picture. Do you have it in your mind? Of what Jesus may have looked like? 
Can you imagine it? That word transfigured, it's where we get the word metamorphosis, which means to, to physically change in form or structure or substance. Now we know theologically Jesus does not change in substance. He is or has two inextricable natures. He's truly God and he's truly man. He is the God-man. And in his incarnation, he took on human flesh. Philippians 2 tells us that in order to do that, he humbled himself and he emptied himself. Well, what did Jesus empty himself of if he remains truly God and truly man? He did not become less God. He did not empty himself of divine attributes or he would be less God. In fact, Colossians tells us that in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus, truly God, 100% God, truly man, 100% man. Two inextricable natures. So then what changed? What changed here? Well, let's go back to the question. What did Jesus empty himself of? I believe that Jesus emptied himself of the divine privileges associated with being with God, a seat in the throne room in the heavenly places, and he emptied himself, or I would say veiled, his divine glory. And so what the disciples, these disciples, got a glimmer of, a taste of, when they saw Jesus transfigured, is that his appearance changed and Jesus dropped the veil. He showed them a taste a preview of his glory. And, and what do they see? How do they describe it? They say that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. How long did you stare at the sun this morning? How long can you look at it before pulling your head down and, and rubbing your eyes or before you go blind? The sun is the brightest object in the universe that we know, that we can get a glimmer of or a taste of. And, and that's exactly how Matthew describes the glory of Jesus' face. We have a similar description of Jesus in Revelation. It says in Revelation 1.16, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. It's not a sun filtered by clouds. It's not a sun filtered by Ontario smog. This is a sun that bursts through the clouds after rain on a clear day, shining in full strength. That's the description of Jesus' face. We're talking full tilt brightness. You take that brightness meter and you take it all the way up until you can't look at it anymore. In the book of Exodus... Moses pleads with God and says, please show me your glory. God gently responds, say, I can't do that, Moses. In fact, if I show you my, the full dose, if I give you the full dose of glory, you'll die. Here's what I'll do. I'll come by you. I'll cover your face with my hand. And then you can just get to get a taste of it, a remnant of my glory from the backside. But you can't see my face and live. You know what the Bible tells us after that event, after that encounter with God on the mountaintop? Moses comes down and his face is shining. 
His face is shining so bright that he actually wears a veil to cover it because people are afraid of Moses. And Moses is simply radiating the glory, not from himself, the glory of God. That is a remnant of God's glory from the backside. Can you imagine what it was like for Jesus to drop the veil? The radiance of glory would come from his essence. Just a preview, a taste. And by the way, I'm convinced that this wasn't even the full dose of glory. I'm convinced there was still a filter, some way of protecting these disciples from seeing the full radiance of his glory, from seeing the full majesty of it. You know why? Well, first of all, they're alive. After this, they don't die. The second reason is this. One of the disciples that went up on this mountain, Transfiguration, his name was John. John is the author of what books? The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. The book of Revelation tells us that John gets another look at glory. He gets a preview of Jesus in the heavenly places in his glory. And John's reaction to that experience is almost like he didn't even, he was, Jesus was unrecognizable. John, in that experience, falls down on his face like a dead man, as if he hasn't seen the glory of Christ before. I think John got a greater dose, in a sense, a greater view of the majestic glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus is glorious and mighty. He is divine. He's God. And for this moment, he gives a preview or a sneak peek of his glory. The radiance of his glory is awesome. It's magnificent. And and we would do well to stop and look at it. To stop and wonder. To just take a moment and try to imagine what that would be like. and, And how awesome, let's use the word in the proper context, awesome that moment truly was. Because you know that if you're in Christ, that is what you'll see on that day. You'll see his face and the full dose of glory. Look at how the book of Revelation describes the new heaven and new earth. Revelation 22, 4 through 5. Talking about God's people. It says, they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And guess what? Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Can you picture it? No sun, no star, no lamp. But the light that beams from the glory of Christ will be more than sufficient. He's glorious. He's magnificent. He's truly awesome. So let's first look at the glory of Jesus Christ. He's glorious. Second, I want us to look at his company. Look at verse 3. It's the first time Matthew used the words behold. He says, behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. and They were talking with him. Who are Moses and Elijah? And why do these two show up? A variety of characters in the Old Testament. You've got Abraham, the father of 
the Jews. You've got Joshua, the great leader that took the people of Israel into the land. You've got other prophets that were great too. You have Isaiah, you have Jeremiah. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, you need to know that Moses is viewed in, in, Jewish, in the Jewish mind as the lawgiver. He was the head of the old covenant. And Elijah is viewed as the head prophet. So these are two big dogs. These are significant leaders in the Jewish record or history. And both of these men had mountaintop experiences with God. A witness of his glory. I already described Moses at Mount Sinai. Did you know that Elijah had an experience on Sinai too? Do you know? Elijah was on Mount Sinai and God sent a wind that split hills and shattered rocks. But his presence wasn't in that. God sent an earthquake that shook the whole mountain. But his presence wasn't in that. God sent fire from heaven. But his presence wasn't in that. And then came a whisper. And the text tells us that at the whisper, Elijah rushed to cover his face because Yahweh was speaking to him. And that with his face covered and his ears open to listen, God told him what his mission was, to go and anoint the next king and to continue to prophesy on behalf of God to the people of Israel. So Elijah had an incredible mountaintop experience. These are two well-respected, influential leaders, but there's greater significance here in why these two showed up. First of all, I want you to notice who their attention is fixed toward. They appeared to the disciples, but who are they talking with? Their attention, they're talking with him, with Jesus. You know, I, I, love these, uh, I love these documentaries that get into, like, the, uh, the, the crime rings and, and, like, the gangs and the gang busts. I, I just enjoy that. I like watching how the FBI figures it out. Do you enjoy these? I like how they figure out, you know, who the leader is and how they figure out how to take these guys down to catch them, right? Because they're squirrely. They can avoid, they can get out of trials like nobody's business. Anyways, I, I'm interested in this. But you know what? One of the... One of the keys in how the FBI, the criminal investigators, find out who the boss is. You know, they're always trying to find the boss, the ringleader. Who's the leader so we can take him down, right? You know how they figure that out? Who gets the most attention? They're observing these guys meet together. They observe these guys go into these buildings. And then they're listening, you know, if they bug the building. Or they're watching who gets the most attention. Who do these men address? Who do these men look to? Who do these men kind of cower underneath, show a submissive posture toward? Friends, in this account, we see the two arguably greatest heads, two greatest men in Israel's past, their attention is towards someone else. Their posture is that they're looking and discussing things with Jesus. I think there's great significance here. There's great significance in that the lawgiver, the old covenant head, is looking and talking with Jesus, who fulfilled the old covenant, and he brings the new. I think there's great significance in Elijah, the, the head of the prophets, and, and kind of, in a sense, all the prophets behind him looking at the fulfillment of all prophecy. The one who would bring, the, the one who's called the yes and amen to prophecy, the one who brings all prophecies to fulfillment. In his 
first coming, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his ultimate return. See, the lawgiver is looking at a superior lawgiver. The prophet is looking to a superior prophet. Jesus is the boss. These men and the writings that they represent point forward to Jesus. And as these men look and give attention to Jesus, so should we. When we read the scriptures, when you read the Old Testament, you know that ultimately they all point the finger forward to Jesus? The law points forward to him, the fulfillment of it, and his great sacrifice on the cross. The prophecies, all these prophecies in this book, find their yes and amen in him. Jesus brings them all to fulfillment. And so when you read the scripture, you don't just read to read. You don't just read to change your behavior. You read to see his face, to look at Christ, and to be compelled to move forward and to fix your gaze on him. Look at the company and look at what they are looking at. Jesus says in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness to who? To me. Look at Jesus. All of scripture points to him. Finally, look at, you know, look at his glory, look at his company, and third, look at his father. Peter said to Jesus in verse 4, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I relate with Peter. I don't know if you've been here. Peter feels like he needs to do something. You ever feel that? Dang, this is epic. I got to do something. I got to start moving, or this is going to get awkward, right? I got to start talking, right? Interjecting. I'm just so overwhelmed right now. I just got to talk and do. I've been there. I don't know if you have. But Peter is missing it. It's not about three men. Don't need three altars. One man. One superior lawgiver and prophet. Peter has been distracted from the center of attention here. And so, guess what? Heaven opens up and interrupts him. I love this. While he's still speaking, verse 5 says. It's like heaven just came in and said, stop talking. Behold, here's the next thing the author wants us to look at. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Have we heard this before? Yes, we have. We heard this at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. A similar scene, the heavens open, the Spirit descends like a dove, and the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now we know this is the voice of the Father, because Peter tells us that when he's talking about this event. When Peter's writing about the transfiguration, he says, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, for when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice that was given to him by the, majestic, by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so in response to Peter's suggestion, and Peter's distraction, I would argue, the father redirects our attention to focus on the object, which is who? Jesus Christ. It says that the father, well, father says, I am pleased with him. Who do you think God the Father wants us to have our attention fixed on or fixed towards? His Son. 
The scriptures tell us that. Jesus said in John 13, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. John 17, when He prays, He lifts up His eyes to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. Acts chapter 3 says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant, Jesus. Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's a great glory exchange between Father and Son. The Son came to this earth, ultimately, to glorify His Father. And the Father then as a result of that, glorifies the Son. When heaven opens and the Father says something or calls our attention to something, we better pay attention. And what does God the Father want our attention fixed on? His Son, Jesus Christ. I can say this confidently. God the Father wants you to look at Jesus today. To be so fixed on Him, so mesmerized, so struck by His awesomeness, that it changes everything in your life. It reorients all other less than priorities behind Him. And let me just tell you, every single other priority in your life is behind this one. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Have you lost focus? Do you need to refocus today? Today of all days. His glory emanates from His substance. His company points to His greatness. His Father is pleased with His obedience. Look at Jesus. Fix your eyes on Him today. The founder and perfecter of our faith. So first was to look at Jesus. Second is to listen to Jesus. We look and we listen. That's the second point in your outline. There's a big difference between the first time that Heaven opened and the Father spoke in, in this time. Did you catch it? The second time, or this time in the transfiguration, the Father says, listen to him. Didn't say that the first time. Now the Father speaks and adds a command. Listen to Jesus. Escuchar. Pay attention. Listen here. Peter, stop talking and listen. Listen. Stop setting your mind on the things of men. Open your ears and listen to Jesus. Now, we would do well to follow suit. Now, we know as parents, you relate to this, it's not enough to just say, listen. What do we mean by that? Listen and apply. Listen and obey. Right? Our our kids could be looking at us Their ears could be open as far as we know, and they could really still not be listening. We don't have their attention, but the kind of listen that God wants from us here is attentive listening, a a listening that doesn't just go, okay, I heard you, and then I'm going to go and do whatever I wanted to do. No, a listening that goes, okay, I'm hearing you, and I will do as you say. James speaks to this. We don't just hear the word of God. We listen and we do it. We hear and obey. Jesus said, whoever is of God hears the words of God. 
But the wise man who builds his house on the rock, that's the one who hears these words of mine and does them. Okay, so when we listen to Jesus, again, I'm not just saying open your ears and hear what he says. I'm saying we need to listen and obey. That's what God the Father wants us to do. As Spurgeon writes, it's better to hear the Son of God than to see the saints or build a temple. You know what's interesting? Peter, when recalling this great event, the transfiguration, he says, we're eyewitnesses of his majesty. We heard the voice born from the majestic glory. We heard the voice born of heaven. We were with him on that holy mountain. Peter says, we had this real experience. We witnessed the transfiguration. We got a preview of glory. But look at what Peter says next in verse 19. Listen. But, Peter says, in contrast to this great event, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. God's word is more sure. And then listen to what he says next. To which you would do well to pay attention. You know what's more certain, more important, more sure than even the most vivid and real experiences in your life? This book. God's word. It is more certain, more sure. And what, what do we need to do? We would do well to pay attention, to listen and apply God's word in our lives. You know, you may have a red letter Bible. Do you have a red letter, red letter Bible? That's helpful, but it could be deceiving. It's helpful because you can quickly get to the sayings of Jesus, but you could be deceived into thinking that only the red letters are his words. And all those black letters, those are just man's words. Or those are less important than the red letters. You know what 2 Timothy 3.16 says? All scripture, every letter, of every word of this book is inspired by God, breathed out by God. So how much of this is Christ's word? All of it. Every jot and tittle. Also, we were just saw that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It all ultimately points to him. He's the yes and amen of it all. And so we would do well to pay attention, not just to the red words, but to the black ones too. Every word that we would listen and obey. Okay, so our ears are open. We want to tune in. We want to listen to what Christ says. So let's look at what he says next, okay? We heard the voice from heaven. God says, listen to him. Here's what Jesus says next. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Wait, did you expect me to go to the red letters in, in verse 7? To hear what Jesus says next? No, Jesus just told you. He just told you what you wanted to, what you need to hear, what you need to listen to. You need to learn something from the response of the disciples. What did they do? In response to the glory of Christ, they fell down on their faces and they were terrified. Listen to me. Escuchar. A listening ear starts with a bended knee. A listening ear starts with a bended knee. Bow before the mighty, glorious Christ and be ready to submit and humble yourself before his word. Now you're listening. Now you're ready. 
you need to be, have a reverential fear of Christ and his glory before you're ready to listen and obey his word. The fear of the Lord, said another way, is the beginning of wisdom. So we have that to learn from the disciples' response, Christ's words there. But look then at verse 7. Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. What do we learn from this? We learn that Jesus is the great high priest. He's the only mediator between God and men. And, and man doesn't initiate the relationship with God, but Jesus condescends and touches these humble sinners. They had an Isaiah experience. Do you remember Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah? He comes into the hot holiness of God. He is a witness of God in his throne room and his glory. And as a response to that, Isaiah humbles himself. He bows the knee, falls flat on his face and says, I'm undone. I'm a sinner. I'm in the presence of holiness. I'm surrounded by wickedness. But what happens? God sends a cleansing coal. Here are the disciples cleansing coal. The touch of Jesus Christ. The forgiveness, the reaffirmation, the restoration of Jesus to condescend to these men who recognize they're a sinner in the presence of glory, but he touches them with his compassion. He says, get up, rise. How often have you heard in scripture, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. God says, blessed are the poor in spirit. They're the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. You want to have an intimate presence with Jesus? You want to have an an intimate encounter to experience the presence of Christ? Fall on your knees. Become a beggar. Admit that you're unworthy. Confess your sin. And He will, in His grace and mercy, touch you, cleanse you, restore you, bring you back. But not until you bend the knee. Not until you humbly submit and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Look at what else we learn in verse 8. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. That is to say, hey, Moses isn't important anymore. Elijah's not important anymore. There's only one mediator between God and men. There's only one Savior, friend. There's only one Lord of Lords, one King of Kings. There's only one. One way, one truth, one life. It is in Jesus Christ, only Jesus. If you're trying to get there any other way, if you're trying to add works to your faith, be done with them. If you're trying to make it to heaven because you're going to turn your life around, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and, and just you know, grit your teeth through it and make it there, stop. Only Jesus, only Jesus who lived the perfect life you couldn't live, who died on the cross as your sacrifice, who rose from the dead, Only Jesus, only Jesus can make you right with a holy God. Look to Jesus today. Listen to what he's teaching us about who he is and his work. As they're coming down the mountain, verse 9, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Jesus has already told them that he's going to be resurrected three days after his death. And what, essentially what he's getting at here is, hey, listen, don't go around sharing this with people because the time of my exaltation hasn't come yet. I, I don't want them to prematurely try to rush God's plan, rush me to the throne. 
I'm not going there yet. I need to suffer and die. I must atone for sinners through suffering and death. He doesn't want the disciples to prematurely rush God's plan. We shouldn't do that either. Again, our posture is to listen, to submit to God's will for our life, not to tell him what we want, when we want it, for our good, right? We don't rush God's plan, we submit to it. That's what Jesus is getting after there by telling them not to tell anyone about it. But the disciples ask him a question, and it's a good question. It reveals that they're scholars. The disciples ask him in verse 10, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They're referring to the prophecies that the scribes are referring to, which talk about the coming of a man like Elijah. A man with the spirit of Elijah, or maybe a manifestation of Elijah, that would be a forerunner to the Messiah, to Jesus. Now listen to Christ's words here. It tells us something very important, eschatologically, theologically. Jesus answered and said, Well, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. So he's saying there's an Elijah still coming. There's a prophet still coming with the spirit of Elijah that will be used mightily by God and that will restore a lot of things before Christ's return. But then look at what he says. He says, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him, but did whatever they pleased. So also... The Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. There's an Elijah coming, a prophet that's going to be used mightily by God to restore all things before the second coming, but there's another Elijah. An Elijah who already came. A man in the spirit of Elijah named John the Baptist, who was a herald, who preached the gospel of repentance and prepared the way for the Lamb who gave himself as a sacrifice for sins. Two heralds, two different prophets, who come before the Messiah to ultimately point people back to Jesus. One already came, and one, as we know it, is still coming. Listen to Jesus. Mark his words. Obey his word. These disciples needed to listen. They had just missed Jesus' big speech that he must suffer, he must die, he must be raised, and he is going to come back. And they're missing it. So Jesus says, well, God says on his behalf, Father, listen, listen. We don't want to miss it. Let's not commit the same sin as the disciples. I want to leave you, though, with a captured vision of Christ and his glory. And to do that, I want us to look at the glorious Christ now as John saw him standing in the midst of his church. If you want to turn there in your Bible, go to Revelation chapter 1. I want us to have two visions of glory, of the glorious Christ before we leave today so that your your attention is captured. Revelation 1.12. I want you to imagine in your mind, if you can, what this may have looked like, what this encounter may have been like. And know this is the same Jesus that you worship and you follow with your life. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on your right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I think it's amazing that the glorious Christ is not standing in the midst of Fortune 500 companies. He's not standing in the midst of the world powers and rulers and empires of the day. Jesus, the glorious Christ, is standing in the midst of local churches. Here he is, your king, the one we worship, the one you worship if you're in Christ. What will it be like when he returns? Let's just get another vision of glory. Go to Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16, I want to read. Let's be captured by the glorious return of Christ. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Imagine what it will be like on this day. Verse 11 reads, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, look, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems, and has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, And the name by which he's called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Just a picture. Of the glorious return of Christ. We'll be captured by that vision today. Let me leave you with the final words of Christ revealed in scripture. Revelation 22.7. Behold. Pay attention. I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this book. Look and listen. Look and listen to the glorious Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know from Scripture it's your desire for us to behold, for us to listen, and for us to glorify Jesus Christ, your Son. God, I pray that he would have our attention today. That amidst the distraction 
amidst the many worries of this life, and they are significant. I pray that first and foremost at the top of all of our lists, in the forefronts of our minds, at the top of the thrones of our hearts, would be Jesus Christ, the righteous one, our King, our Lord, our Savior. It's because of his work at Calvary that we can be forgiven of our sins. It's because he rose from the dead that we can have new life in his name. And we know, we're sure that he's going to come back because he promised so. Help us to look at him, to behold him, and to follow him with all of our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen.